I'm Jeff Cohen. Lior Arusi is one of the world's leading authorities on customer experience and strategy execution, having led over 200 corporate transformations worldwide. He's also the author of four books, including his latest, Next is Now, Five Steps for Embracing Change. He and his wife, Dror, have lived in the United States and in Israel, and he has an interesting perspective on living an observant life in both countries. Lior, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Well, thank you very much for having me. We appreciate you making the time. And for full disclosure, I must tell you that many of the people we've been interviewing so far were born secular and became observant and were working through that trajectory of their life. I understand your background is a little bit different. So give our listeners a sense of where you were on the observant spectrum when you were born and raised. Sure. So uh, I was born in uh, Ramat Gan in Israel. Uh, my parents are, uh, are Orthodox, you know, they're observant Jews. I went to a regular, you know, Orthodox uh, school, but by all means not the same as what you know in the States. Um, it was more of a public school, so we finished around 12 o'clock. At the end of sixth grade, in seventh grade, actually, my uh, parents sent me to a uh, yeshiva prep school with a dormitory, so we actually had very extensive studies starting there. And to supplement that, I, uh, I went to B'nai Akiva, to the youth movement. My parents both are uh, from Yemenite descent. And the custom for Yemenites is to start learning how to lane at the age of six. Wow. So at the age of five, I started to go to, uh, you call it, afternoon rabbi sessions. And I learned every Parsha, both the laning and the Targum, the, the onkelos right next to it. And that's what I've done until seventh grade. So every day for seven years, I was going there, I was studying the Parsha, I, I knew how to learn everything, Yemenite style. And it was always surprising for me why my Ashkenazi friends were going freaking out about learning for Bar Mitzvah. <laughs> I mean, for me, Bar Mitzvah was like, okay, it's just another Aliyah, what's the big deal? Never understood it until I realized I had a very special upbringing in terms of learning the Parsha. Well, try comparing that to someone who isn't raised religious at all and has no background in the Hebrew language and tries to tackle a bar mitzvah. That's a whole different beast entirely. Uh, I can relate a little bit since English was not my first language. And when I came to America, there were some uh, major mistakes I made in pronunciations that were pretty embarrassing. So what were you surrounded with as a child? Were all of your friends observant? Was your community mostly observant Jews? Was there a mix? What were you, what were you experiencing as a child? It was a totally mixed environment, okay? Uh, Non-observant, observant, play together. We play together downstairs, you know, the apartment building. We didn't really see the differences in, uh, as much. In the Ashkenazi community, there's very clear, you know, this is the halacha, you're either observant or you're not observant. Now, many of my cousins, and I had plenty just on my uh, grandfather's side, I have over 100 cousins, first and second. We didn't really flag them as observant or not. They could have come for Friday night dinner and then go drive to the, uh, you know, to the beach the next morning. And none of us saw anything wrong with that. It was, it was like a spectrum in which you observe what you can observe. And in many ways, we, we didn't see the labels that way. We didn't call one, you're from and you're not from, you're keeping this, you're not keeping that. It was a very, very fluid environment. And that's why, you know, having a non-observant neighbor was... was you know, it's a normal thing, and we'll play together, and they knew that on Shabbat we don't drive, and they do drive, and that's it. Do you think that has something to do with being in Israel versus in the United States, where there's a little bit more of a distinction between the communities where the folks are more observant and more of the secular communities? 
I, I think I think there is a very very distinct difference between the two communities, and and that is the nationality element. In Israel, the nationality envelops you. You know, you you you're Israeli, therefore you are. You know, you're defined as Jewish. The definition starts there, and it seems like the religion is just coming as another layer on top of it of your expression of your identity. In America, where your identity is American and it's not necessarily correlating to your Jewish identity, then you got two identities that you need to kind of merge together, find a way to, to make them work, uh, but it doesn't have that almost like safety net of the, of the nationality that, that kind of like already defines you as a Jew. In America, in very much so, you need to choose to do so, be it from, be it uh, reform or conservative, you're still making a choice that is somewhat distinctly different than your American national identity. And that creates a very, very different dynamic in the way you experience and you express your uh, religious beliefs. And I wonder for someone who's listening to us and saying, wait a minute, I thought this podcast is about people who were secular and became observant. And I think, well, this guy was born into it. So what exactly is his journey? I'm curious if, as a child, you're thinking about what you were born into, and is it a choice? And are you thinking as you grow up, is this something I'm going to stick with or not? Or is this even something I can consider as I'm being raised? So I have to tell you that I learned it from my own, my own rabbis. If you're ever going to say that you've never had doubts, you're, you're lying to yourself, okay? Anyone who's going to tell you that because they were born, uh, you know, from and observant, and therefore they've never had any doubt whatsoever, Either they didn't experience faith correctly, maybe they just went through the cultural journey and not through the, the, the depth of, you know, do I have a relationship with God? Who is God? What is he doing? If you've never had those questions, then something is is off with, with, with your understanding. And I think that we're all making choices. The fact that our parents put us on a certain trajectory created a certain background. But I, I do recall distinctly that at the age of 18, you know, I started to have my own questions. What am I doing? Why am I doing? I'll tell you more than that. Because of the army experience, and if you want, we can talk about it a little bit later, but because of the army experience, that question is being accentuated for you because A, your non-observant friends who are with you in the unit are starting to ask questions. You don't have the answers because I'll tell you this. When you are put in the trajectory of being from, and you go to the yeshiva that I went to, we studied Gemara six hours a day. Do you know how many hours we spent on Jewish faith and Jewish thought? Less than an hour a week. We had no idea if God exists or doesn't exist because all of our teachers assumed that that's part, part of the package. Our parents thought that the teachers are going to teach it. The teacher said it's not of our business. Your parents should be teaching you. We ended up going to the army with no foundation. We were experts in Gemara, but no roots in what does it really mean? And the army have you kind of, you know, face some serious, you know, challenges, that's going to question your faith. And some people, by the way, leave the army without their keeper. And the army, unfortunately, is, is becoming accelerated to, to, to their doubts. So to say that you were born on a certain trajectory, um, it doesn't make it easier. To be honest with you, it makes it more difficult because then if you have a different opinion, you won't tell it to your parents. You may find yourself in hiding for a while, and you're just going to suffer. So I'm glad you brought up the army, because I always think about, as I was on my own journey, it was so important to be surrounded by people who are growth-oriented and moving in the right direction, observance-wise. Here, you go into the army, now you have 
this mix, all levels of observance from nothing to, to all in. So what is it like to be surrounded by all these different perspectives as you're also kind of coming of age and trying to figure out what you want to do with your own life? So in Israel, uh, so for many, many Americans, you're accustomed to the concept of going for a year in Israel to a yeshiva and, you know, after high school. In Israel, the concept is actually a Hesder yeshiva, a yeshiva in which you serve five years, in which some of them are in the army and some of them you're studying in yeshiva. And that was the choice I made because I felt that the high school yeshiva did not prepare me really for my faith choices. It might have given me religious learning tools, but it didn't give me that. So I, I, I went with that option, but I, I, will, I will share with you two, two interesting examples that will, were very personal to me. The first one is I went to a medic's course. I served as a, as a military medic in the Israeli army. Uh, the course requires very extensive uh, studies for four, for four uh, months, and it actually exempts you from about a year and a half of medical school afterwards if you choose to go. So that's how extensive it was. And at the end of the course, I was selected to go to the National Unit of Medics, which is the one that, you know, when you see the Israeli army go to, um, you know, tragedy-stricken places like Haiti and whatever, that's the National Unit. That's the, they are the top of the top. But the army said, look, you need to, uh, you need to give up your history. We want you here full-time. We can't have you go back to the yeshiva and whatever. And they put tremendous amount of pressure on me saying, we think you're the right person to be in that. It's an elite unit. This is this is the Navy SEALs of, of the medics corps. I mean, come on, you can't give it up. And uh, and, and what do you tell them? And you, you want you want to keep your studies and, and at, the, at the same time, kind of career wise, or, you know, you want to express yourself to the highest level. And it was a tough one. And at the end, I, I gave up that position, which is, again, uh, was very, very uh, difficult. But yes, the army does put you in places where sometimes you need to make choices uh, about uh, where you want to be. And I think things got a little bit better these years, but it was a tough one. That story is almost hard to believe because as someone living in the United States, you would think of this dream of I'm going to Israel and I'm becoming observant that you wouldn't run into someone particularly who's involved with the army or the government who would be saying, "Eh, maybe it's not so important you keep that because we have this other priority for you. Let me give you another example, okay? So as a medic in the army, you're also doing Shabbat, okay? On Shabbat, people come to you, they're not observant, they're asking for certain things, and I needed to understand what am I allowed to do within my professional responsibilities and what is allowed halachically. And I put together a list of questions, and I started to solicit rabbinical advice about, you know, what are we supposed to or not? And all the rabbis like, no, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this. I'm like, I don't need you to tell me what I can do. I'm looking for what you can do. And... Uh, until I found a rabbi who actually served as a medic and, and, and integrated these two worlds and he was able to guide me and I actually wrote like a little guide for all the medics in the, in the army who are orthodox about how to handle certain situations uh, and deal with that. So our medics course was uh, summer all the way to October. The rule in the course was if you miss more than four days, you're out of the course because you cannot, you cannot miss that. We were lucky to have Shiva Sarbetamus, Tisha B'Av, Tzom Gedalia, and Yom Kippur on the same exact course, which means technically those four fasts have covered us for the four days we can miss, <laughs> and that's it, right? Comes one of the non-observants who decided to play a joke on all the Orthodox uh, uh, soldiers in the course, goes to the commander, and he says to him, it was a day after Yom Kippur, he says to him, 
Look, the Orthodox soldiers, they're embarrassed to tell you, but today, today is, is Tzom Yeshaya. It's a fest of Yeshaya. But they're, they're afraid to tell you that because it's going to be their fifth day, and then, <laughs> you know, they're going to be expelled from the course. So I, I just want you to know that they are, you know, th this is their Tzom. The commander calls us, and he started with, shame on you. How can you desecrate the Tzom Yeshaya? I want you to remember what Yeshaya means to the Jewish people. And he started to say, and I remember my grandfather going with Philin on Shabbos and Yom Tzom Yeshaya. And, like, and then forced us into our tents, put a guard outside, and told us not to get out in Tzom Yeshaya. <laughs> so... <laughs> that guy decided to take our religion, make a little bit of fun of it. And by the way, it was also a moral issue. I mean, we need to tell the commander on the other side, he's going to lose face. And I could only imagine him passing by the rabbi of the base and saying, you see, I took the Orthodox people and I, I told them to keep some Yeshaya and that rabbi is going to look at him and say, what the heck are you talking about? <laughs> so you, you had a variety of interesting things because, again, the non-Orthodox is a secular, we're challenging us in different ways and uh, you need to be able to, uh, you know, stick by your beliefs and yet uh, do the full duty of what you need to do. So I appreciate all these insights into your time in the army. And I know around this time in your life is also when your future wife comes into the picture and a move to the United States. So take us through that period of your life. So I was involved in different nonprofits, uh, and one of them sent me to the States. And then Bnei Akiva asked me if I would be a shaliach, kind of a counselor from Israel in one of their camps. Uh, I was supposed to go to I.O. I ended up going to Waldros, Wisconsin, which is the Bnei Akiva camp of Chicago. My wife was from Cleveland, she ended up also there, and that's how we met. And the head of the camp was really, really keen on having, he was counting the number of couples that the camps create. <laughs> so he would actually lend, he, was, he would actually lend his car to kind of dating couples uh, with the hope that something is going to come out of it. And that's how we met, and uh, we ended up uh, getting married. So you're, you're meeting in the United States, are you now back in Israel, or you're starting a life together in the United States? So the plan was that we'll get married, uh, my wife will finish her studies, which was a few months, and then we'll come back to Israel. All good. At the same time, I'm starting to study at Bar-Ilan University. Our, our wedding is, is planned, invitations are out, and my sister goes to the American embassy in Tel Aviv to get a visa. And she writes down, reason for travel, my brother's wedding. The council called her, and he says, where is your brother? And she said, oh, no, don't worry about it. He, he has a tourist visa already, and he, he doesn't need a visa. And he said, no, no, where is he? And she said, he's in Israel, but he's okay. And he said, he cannot go to America with a false intention, because if he has a tourist visa, he cannot go to get married. That is actually cheating the system. He needs to go on a fiancé visa. And that's when all trouble started, because apparently a fiancé visa in, uh, you know, to the United States takes six months. Invitations are out. Our wedding are, are, is in three weeks. Uh-oh. And my late mother-in-law actually got the, the senator of Ohio involved, and I got a call on Sunday from the embassy to come and, and, and go through the fiancé visa process. And that's how I ended up uh, in America. But what I did not know was that the fiancé visa requires that I'll be in America for three years. So that changed everything. Wow, that was not in the fine print, I guess. You missed it. That, that was not in the fine print for a very interesting reason, by the way. 
because according to the American government, they have to give me a green card and eventually a, a citizenship. And I said, you know what, I'll, for, I'll forgo this. I'll, I'll sign any document that I don't know, I don't need any of that. And they said, there is no such a document, sir. Nobody ever says no to American citizenship. They look at me like I'm a completely insane person. So last minute, literally two days before school started, I, I signed up at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. I did my undergrad and MBAs in three years. Very accelerated, not because I'm smart, but because I was afraid of the loans. I didn't know where I'm going <laughs> to pay for those. Um, so we ended up staying in America for, for four years and then, uh, and then going back to Israel. Okay, so now you're up to that point of having like a first real job now that you have your degree and you're thinking about what you want to do for a living. So what role is religion playing in your life at this point and is it playing it all into what you're thinking you want to do for a career? So actually that started earlier. My dream was to go to Cornell University, School of, Ma- uh, of uh, Hospitality, and I would be part of the hospitality business and I will be managing hotels and I'll be living in different places and everything else. And when I started, that that was my plan. That was, you know, I knew I'm going to Cornell. I knew I'm going to go to hospitality. I always was infatuated with hotels. That was my plan. Until I started to ask people around, they said, you know, you got Shabbatot, you got Chagim, you got Kosher. Which hotels do you want to manage? And I said, I want to manage the best hotels in the world. I want to manage the, <laughs> the Waldorf Astoria in New York City. And I said, good luck with that. You're going to be serving non-kosher food nonstop. You're going to have to work, uh, you know, Hagim and, and, and Shabbatot. And you might as well say goodbye to your, you know, to your family. And so the first crushing truth uh, was there. The second crushing truth was actually during school. During school, I was trying to get internships. I sent hundreds of, uh, of, of letters at the time. I would go to the interview. I've done dozens and dozens of interviews. And within two seconds, you knew I, I'm not going to get it. I'm not going to get it. I couldn't really figure it out until my professor said to me, look, Lior, it's very sensitive, but I'm going to tell you, there are some Orthodox people who go to work without kippah, without, you know, your head covered. And we were in Cleveland, and apparently the, the Rosh Yeshiva of Tells Paskin is the same thing. You know, many New Yorkers cannot contemplate it. You know, if you're in the financial uh, business, you know, you cannot contemplate it. You're in the Midwest, you know, 30 years ago, that wasn't that common. And, and he said, look, it's not personal, it's not anti-Semitic. Somebody with a turban will have the same thing. America likes to see people the way it likes to see. And I went to two interviews without Kippah. It was very bizarre for me. Okay, two interviews, I still remember that to this day. GE and AT&T, highly coveted positions. After probably 200 interviews I've done, okay, that I got nothing. I got the job in both of them in five minutes. In five minutes. After two years, I had kids at that time. I couldn't, I mean, I was, I was doing any odd job possible from washing dishes to driving. Oh, I had the best job. I was delivering fur coats to people. You know, <laughs> that was a job. But I couldn't get a corporate job until I learned that, you know, in certain jobs, in certain situations, in certain industries, it, you know, and I came as a proud Israeli. I'm like, I'm not removing my kippah. My kippah is my sign. You know, what the, what the heck do you think? Uh, so, so the challenges started there. I was interviewing for Deloitte for, con- for management consulting, and the interview was on Shabbat. I was already, I passed everything. This was the final interview. 
and it was on Shabbat because they were traveling throughout the, the week, so the only time they could interview was on Shabbat. I didn't know that, but it was on Shabbat. I made up an excuse, and they said to me, look, Lior, we want you. We, everybody agreed. This is the final thing. We're flying you, you know, first class, the whole thing. And nobody was there to guide me and to tell, to tell me, hey, tell them the truth. So I wasn't. I was making up stuff. So they made up another date for me, but it was also Shabbat. And Uh-oh. that's when I missed that's when I missed the best the best uh, at that time that's what I thought was the best opportunity so I, I was already having the the abrasiveness of my religious belief and my career desires kind of like hitting each other during those years and it, it was very clear to me that it's gonna be a journey that uh, will not be clean and I will have to make some tough choices so let's delve into this just for a minute because I, I talk to people who think you know what if they see the keeper and they don't want me, then the company's not right for me anyway. And I'm not going to change who I am just because a company is telling me they're not comfortable with me wearing the keeper. And then I meet other people who say, you know what? The keeper is the one outwardly obvious thing when you're meeting someone that tells you that religion is a piece of their life and I don't want to be judged before the person has a chance to get to know me. And that those two philosophies are very hard for people to reconcile who are observant but choose to work in a field where the vast majority of people are either not Jewish or not religious. So how are you coming to grips with these decisions you were having to make to fit into this world you wanted to be in? My life journey took me to places that I'll never ever imagine that I need to be there as a, as a person, as a Jew. And eventually I developed the following. I believe that Hashem puts me exactly at the place where I'm needed and my skills are relevant. I'm always at that juncture. I can tell you, never planned what I ultimately experience. So for me, I'm here for a reason. There is an opportunity and there is a skill set. And if I don't believe that Hashem puts me in the right place with the right skill set for whatever the opportunity is, then I'm wasting my time. But I learned one more thing. I will not let the keeper be the divider between what my mission is and who I need to inspire or influence at this at this given point. So if, if you need me without the, that packaging, they all knew what my beliefs are. They all knew where, where I come from. There are plenty of other ways to demonstrate your beliefs than sticking to something that sometimes just people don't know what to do with it. So I decided that, you know, I'm here for a mission, I'm here for a reason at every meeting, at every email, at every presentation, and I'm here to deliver the best. And and the Kippah is just one manifestation, but it's actually our own actions that's going to say if we are people of value and representing Hashem's message or not. It doesn't have to be just the Kippah. And so you mentioned when you took the keep off, you started getting some yeses in the interview. So what's kind of that first big opportunity you took as your career started to progress? So, so I chose to go with AT&T. Uh, I, did, I did a period of time with AT&T uh, until we kind of left to, to Israel. And in Israel, I took a position. I also had a, I, I had a choice of taking a, a job in Israel with an Israeli uh, company. will be easier, no problem, no, no problems with kosher, no problem with that. I decided to go to technology. I decided to go to a company that actually exports, which means I'll be on the road. I'll be flying. I will not be allowed at home. But again... You know, in Israel, part of part of the mission was to provide jobs. Jobs do not come from internal uh, activities; they come from expert. And I, I believe that expert uh, was important. So I joined what is now known as Startup Nation, 
At that time, we didn't know how to call that. We were just a technology company selling products. My first account was the Atlanta Committee for the Olympic Games, and I sold to them. After that, I uh, was stationed in London. I was flying back and forth Monday morning to uh, Thursday night, and I was developing the, uh, the British market. So I lived in London technically for a year. After they moved to Milan, lived there for a year. And let me put it this way. Kosher or davening or everything was not as readily available as other people <laughs> in Teaneck think it is. It was a challenge then and there as well. So you're going all over the world, but I understand you then settle back again in the United States. In Is it Northern California? Where do you go next for that next big career move? So, so the second startup I worked for, basically, you know, the CEO came to me. Here's an Israeli style for you. And he said... You want a good news or the bad news? I said, how about you start with the bad news? He said, you're fired. I said, what's the good news? He said, you're promoted. You're moving to California in two weeks. I said, so what was the, the bad news? He said, well, in case you're going to say no to that, you're fired. So um, on, on a two weeks notice, uh, we packed and we moved to California to develop the, the company's uh, business. And then HP basically stole me from them. It was uh, HP was trying to rejuvenate itself, and we're looking for more entrepreneurial style. Uh, and I was the second executive that was brought into a headquarter that was not from Stanford MBA or UCLA MBA. There was so homogenous that everybody had the same thinking, and I was brought in as the entrepreneur to run a very small division. Uh, that my job was to actually develop to, you know, beyond that. Our division was developing security solutions and our first focus was actually online banking. So within three years, uh, I converted 120 of the largest banks in the world to uh, start doing online banking, what is now known as e-banking or whatever, but helping them do this uh, transformation again with clients around the world was just an unbelievable experience and unbelievable growth. So one of the things that surprises me a little bit about Northern California, I think people who become observant get this sense that all of the major American cities are going to have the infrastructure you need to live an observant life. And you see that in New York and Chicago and Los Angeles and Miami. But the times when I've gone to Northern California, you don't feel it as much as you might expect for how big of a city and a big of an area it is. So what was the community like for you there as you you have this amazing job at the same time i'm assuming you have kids at this point you're trying to give them the jewish community experience there was jewish life there there was a strong iranian community and there was some israeli community there there was a a, a jewish school called uh, south peninsula hebrew day school so my oldest daughter was there first grade and they get the sidur party and all the children stood on stage and they each had to express what they are seeking from God, okay, on the Sidur party. First guy goes up, first kid, first grader. I would like to ask from God that Intel will buy my father's company. <laughs> Next one. I would like to ask from God that my father will get financing for his uh, new startup. I'd like to ask from God, and it was all material. My daughter asked for a brother, so she got hers. I don't know what the others got, uh, <laughs> but she got hers. Then I catch my daughter playing games with her friend, and they are talking among themselves about whose father's stock options are more valuable that they will never have to work in their lives. The challenges were as, as far as, you know, there were birthday parties that were made especially on Shabbat so they don't have to serve kosher for my daughter, even though they were in the, in the Jewish school. 
And if the uh, basically the message we got was, if you want your kid to eat kosher, bring the bring the cake yourself. So my my wife was basically baking the cakes for birthday parties in order to make our kids feel normal. And after three four years, we were, we were there for four years, and and Dora came back and she said, "Look, Leor, we're gonna pay a price here. This is not gonna be what we want. This is not gonna be the Jewish life that we want. I'm riding high." Jeff, I'm riding high, I'm riding my own ticket, I'm three layers below the CEO, and I'm 33 years old. And what do you do? So this is really interesting because this is the second time you've been faced with an unbelievable opportunity. You gave the example earlier, uh, the medic example, and now here, from a career standpoint, your life is about to be made. Whether or not you personally care about the materialistic side, it's going to be handed to you if you keep on this progression at HP. At the same time, it's coming to a head with what your spiritual journey is meant to be. So take me inside some of the reflection you're doing, the conversations you're having with drawers. You're figuring out, okay, maybe we can't have both of these things. How are we going to reconcile this and, and move our family forward? So I was hinting to HP that I'm probably going to leave because this is not working for me. So I'm called by the CEO and she said to me, Leo, what's the problem? I said, you know, Jewish lives and, you know, education for my children, whatever. She said, where are you going? I said, I'm thinking about going to New Jersey. We found some good schools. She said, you know what? I've got a building in New Jersey that I don't know what to do with. How about if you take this building, move your staff, hire staff, do whatever you want, and move the division to over there? I have no problem. I trust you. You make the numbers. I said, yes, but what, what's going to be my next job after that? She said, well, back here. I said, so we're not really solving the problem. So she turned to me and said, so you don't need the building? I said, I'm not going to take the building in New Jersey. I'm really sorry. And, 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 and so the story goes, you know what the building is? The Frisch building. Frisch bought it after I said no. Wow. So that's the story for you. On That was the building that she didn't know what to do with. And after that, she uh, put it out there to, uh, to sell. For those who aren't familiar with that, give us the background on that building. So the building was owned by HP, and it was part of their technology and R&D uh, operation in the East Coast. Um, and um, obviously, it wasn't called at that time the Frisch Building. We we knew people from New Jersey and Greater New York re- referred to the Frisch Building, but it's the building for the Frisch High School. So as as the high school grew, they needed to move to a bigger location, and eventually they acquired the property from HP, renovated it, and turned it into a beautiful uh, school that one of my daughters even got a chance to attend. A week after we left Silicon Valley, I got a call with an offer for a VP of Marketing Communication for Google. They just went public. You can only imagine the value of that package. And they were pursuing me. And Dora said to me, you need to consider it. I said, I said, what? Again? Again being on the road? I've been, I've been on the road already. I'm already traveling like crazy. Now I'm going to travel back and forth to the office. It's not a life. You always said that your religion comes first until, <laughs> you know, it's like we all have a strategy until you get a punch in the face. That was my punch in the face. Mm-hmm. You know, prove it. You know, I looked at my children. I tried to draw a trajectory and I said, if this is going to continue, I, I'm not sure they're going to stay orthodox or observant or anything. There's nothing here that supports it because at the end of the day, you, it does it does take a village. You know, they need to see like-minded people. They need to see teachers that are are like-minded. They need to see other things. I cannot provide it to them. I can I can give them the most heartfelt Shabbat dinner, but but that's not going to be enough. I, I can't have them constantly have tension between the two worlds. From a career standpoint, I'm I'm going to say it as harsh as it might sound. I knew it was over. 
You know, I wonder if someone who's listening to this is thinking, well, therefore, if I'm 21, 22, coming out of college, why should I bother going on this kind of track? Because maybe it's going to work for three years, five years, 10 years, but it's going to come to a head at some point. But I don't think that's really like the message from your story. That's what was happening to you. But I think the way the story turns out, that's not really the takeaway. If you're a person of faith at whatever level degree, and you believe that there is a purpose to life and there is a purpose to your existence, then you go on the journey that Hashem puts you. It's always a combination between what you want and where Hashem needs you to be. And you go on that journey and you do the absolute best in that journey and, and then you move to the next one. And you'll make some mistakes in the, in the process. I truly believe that in everything I do, I am sending a message. I am teaching people. It's just in a different way. I'll, gi- I'll give you a great example. One of, one of my best friends was a monk for, for 10 years in, 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 in a, uh, in, at a monastery. And then he moved to become a, an HR executive at an energy company in New York. And I asked him, you know, how, how was the experience, you know, and why did you make the move? And he said to me something so insightful. He said, you know, when I was at, at monastery, 40% of my colleagues believe that they have a divine inspiration that God speaks to them. He said, now in corporate, it's about 85%. All of, them, all of them think that they know everything and God speaks to them. But he said, here's the truth, Lior. People are seeking purpose. They're seeking spirituality. They're seeking meaning. And in some areas, traditional religion does not fulfill the job. Some people will not go to the traditional institutions. So I opted to take my toolkit and my commitment and bring it to the corporate world because the, the thirst is still there. It's just that they need to get it through different vehicles. I, I would suggest to anyone with belief that Hashem is there and there is a purpose and there is a Hashgacha Pratit, a personal, uh, a personal uh, supervision of Hashem, wherever you go, push it to the highest because Hashem didn't give you the skills to be mediocre. There's nothing in the Torah that says, please be mediocre in what <laughs> you do and, and just, you know, wing it. So that's a perfect lead into the Strativity years, which makes sense from you get to this decision with Drawer that we're going to walk away from the opportunity at HP, the opportunity with Google, and you're going to go to New Jersey where your kids are going to be surrounded, like you said, by like-minded people. And what are you thinking now career-wise? So what comes next from that moment? So we in, in New Jersey, by the way, we lived in two different places based on Jewish education. This was the only reason. So we lived in Livingston because at that time we liked Kushner as the school. And when our kids moved to Mayanot, we wanted them to be nearby, to have friends and everything else. So we moved to Fairlawn. Um, so I joined a, a technology company by the name of NICE, worked there for three years. Um, and that's when I got the epiphany that there is something out there that might have an unmet need that I can I can fulfill. The story goes like this. One of my Dutch clients received the conspicuous award of the uh, worst contact center in Holland. If you know the Dutch people, they're very direct. And the magazine that gave them this award placed a 10-piece orchestra in front of their office to play funeral songs <laughs> to embarrass them. Oy. So I called, I called my client and I said, what happened? You have the latest technology. I sold you the latest technology. What happened? How did you get to this level? And he said to me, Lior, even a fool with a tool is still a fool. I'm like, what? He said, you sell me the technology. I don't know what to do with it. I didn't prepare strategically. I didn't prepare culturally. I didn't prepare operationally. Then came another situation. We had a major deal at Charles Schwab. 
And um, the saleswoman calls me the, the day after, and she said, look, Lior, I have to tell you, there's a clause in the contract that you are not aware of, and we had to sign the contract with the, without you being made aware of that. And I said, you can't do that. She said, well, I went above your head, I went to the CEO, and I got approval. I said, what's the clause? She said, Charles Schwab demanded that you will go from each to each contact center, they had 13 of them in the US, and deliver a full day training on what is customer experience. And I said, what? I'm not gonna do that. She said, they love your vision and everything else, that's why they bought the technology, but they recognize that they don't have the concept and they want you to do that. And I said, so what, you basically gave away my time? She said, no, we priced it. I said, priced it based on what? There's no price point for this. She <laughs> said, we made up a price and so on and so forth. So I called the VP uh, of customer service at Charles Schwab and I said to him, look, do me a favor, whatever shtick or trick you pulled here, very funny, nice, cute, whatever. Here's my suggestion. I'm gonna refund you the money. You're gonna take it to McKinsey or to BCG or to Bain or whoever is your consultant of record. Give them the money and they'll do it for you. And you know what he said to me? He said to me, what makes you think we didn't try? And then I started to investigate and I realized a lot of companies are buying these technologies, claiming they're gonna be good to their customers, but they have no idea what the heck does that mean. And when I tried to look for solutions for them, I saw that there is no cohesive solution. You know, these guys are doing research, these guys are doing training, these guys are doing branding, but nobody's looking at the full picture and saying, you wanna transform yourself to a customer obsessed organization? I can take you all the way from the research to training the last employee. That journey was not put together. And that was how Strativity was really put together. So I'm starting a what I called an execution firm. I didn't want to be a consulting firm. I want to make sure that we are known for our results. I'm starting in 2003 uh, out of my garage, basically a uh, consulting firm. By the way, first year was a complete total disaster. Lost tons of money. All my ideas fell on their face. And my wife gave me about two years to do this little game before I go back to corporate uh, jobs. But things have turned around since then. <laughs> now I'm wondering when you're now in a position where you're the founder and you're starting the company, are you setting the expectation from the beginning with the people you're hiring about your religious beliefs and days you're not going to be there and what Shabbos means to you. Are you able to be more open about that versus these earlier stories you were telling when you're working for other people? So the, the answer is yes. Yes, I definitely I definitely am very clear about that and everybody knows what, what it's all about. They knew that the rule was always do the human thing first and they, they saw that happens day in, day out. I'll give you one, one interesting example. We sent a consultant to Austin, Texas to do some work and she calls me all freaking out. One of the executives wanted to meet with her. She didn't know that he wanted to meet with her. So he yelled at her in front of everybody and embarrassed her and so on and so forth that she's wasting his time. And I said to her, how are you doing? She said, I'm okay. Can you handle the rest of the trip? She said, yes. She comes back. I call the CEO and I say, sir, there was an incident where one of your executives yelled at my consultant in front of everybody and embarrassed her. And he said, yeah, what do you want to do about it? I said, I want him to apologize. He said, apologize? Let me check into that. He calls me back and he said, I checked the situation and in my assessment, he berated her just the right amount and therefore we do not, we will not extend an apology. And I said, here's what's going to happen next. I'm going to cut you a check for your down payment. I'm going to FedEx it to you for 1030 in the morning delivery tomorrow. And the moment you will receive it, I will consider this project over. I said, why, why, what are you doing that? Since what? I said, 
We're done. We're done. If in your mind there is such a thing as sufficient amount of berating to a human being in front of others, then we don't share the same values and I can't help you. I just cannot help you. Please reconsider. I said, no. And that story is one of many that my guys have learned that we will do the human thing first. We were based on, on, on those foundations and they all knew that it ultimately came from my religious beliefs. So I'm curious if these other stories you told me about where religion and your career kept coming to a head and you had to make difficult choices, did that ever happen while you had strativity or did you now find like the perfect balance of putting these two worlds together? We've done transformation projects with awesome companies from Johnson & Johnson to Novo Nordisk to Delta Airlines, Mercedes-Benz, BMW, the list goes on. They always claim that strativity punches above its weight and we were very proud of it because we delivered the results. And when we won the Mercedes-Benz uh, project, it became really our flagship. Everybody was, you know, were, were, were shocked. And in my contract, I said to Mercedes, look, I'm an Orthodox Jew. I'm not going to work Fridays. I'm not going to work Shabbat. They wanted me on the road to do these big events for, for their employees around the country, 25,000 people. It was 100 full-day workshops. Imagine that, 10 months on the road. And I remember that distinctly. We're in Chicago at the Hyatt. And it's a big setup. I'm not coming myself. There are 25 people coming. This is, this is, a, this is a show. Think about like a mini-conference. And after two days, you know, the dealers are saying, you know, we didn't finish all of our employees. And Mercedes says, yeah, but we're shutting down. And said, well, well I need to finish my, my other employees. And they said, well, we're coming back next week. And they said, why are you doing that in the middle of the week? And you know what the answer was? It's Lior's Yom Kippur. <laughs> and everybody knew that. Then the following year when I was doing some stuff, they booked me and I said, Guy, guys, wait a second, we, we haven't spoken, I have some Jewish holidays. And they said, yeah, yeah, we checked, we checked, you have your Passover. I said, yeah, yeah, but they said, don't worry, Lior, we know you're the eight days Passover Jew. We know that, <laughs> don't worry, we checked. The amount of respect that they had for my beliefs were just incredible, incredible. So, but but I, I had to tell other, play, other places, it's Shabbat, I'm not coming. Or it's a, it's a holiday. I'm not coming. I'm not doing that. I'll give you one more example. One day we are getting an RFP from Dubai for a company that sells cosmetics to Arab women. They have a chain of stores like Sephora in America. They are the Sephora of the Arab world, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, everywhere. Big chain. I told my team, knock yourself out. Have fun. I don't believe we'll win that. It's in Dubai, whatever. They are putting all the proposal and everything else. We get a call, you're the finalist, and then we get another call and we said, you won the contract. And then the following comment came. We know that your owner is Israeli and Jewish, but that doesn't matter to our Saudi owner. We just want you to know that, but he would <laughs> like to meet him. Uh, so would you please come to Dubai? So we signed a contract, I'm flying to Dubai to meet the guy. First thing out of his mouth, I just want you to know that in my childhood, I played soccer with Osama bin Laden. Whoa. And I'm just, and I'm just staring at this guy. It's like, what's the purpose of that statement? Are you trying to threaten me? Are you trying? What are you doing here? And that just magnified the bigger picture of, you know, why would an Orthodox Jew end up designing cosmetic stores for Arab women? I mean... What 
kind of a mission is that? So why did I end up there? I don't know. So how do you, given how well things are going at Strativity, and I'm thinking about how far you've come from being a young man who's losing job opportunities for Akiba to someone who is now basically embracing religion as part of how you're choosing to run your company. How do you get from there to saying, I'm going to walk away from this and sell the business and do something else? So the the decision to sell, first, we were approached nonstop. I mean, the company was growing very fast. We were in the Inc. 5000 for six years in a row. They called us and said, how are you doing that? There's barely, you know, 6% of companies that can do that. We are winning awards, consulting magazines, so on and so forth. Our business grew to a point that we were already managing multi-million dollar contracts. You know, the f- fastest contract we executed was three and a half million dollars in six months. The largest contract was about $19 million. And we were starting to piss off the big four. You know, uh, EY, Deloitte, Accenture, they were noticing us. They couldn't say that we were bad because we have track record of results. At that point, I had 150 employees, offices in Australia, Toronto, London, and New York. We've done work in 21 countries. But I felt that that's the time that somebody else needs to take it to the next level, that my skill set is more in the entrepreneurial side than the executive side. I don't enjoy bureaucracy. I don't enjoy the paperwork. I don't enjoy the processes. I, I enjoy the visioning. I enjoy the initiation. I enjoy that part of the business. So between the uh, competition getting intensified and market changes and and that part, the time the time was right. It took me some time to find the right buyer. There were a couple of negotiations and so on and so forth. And it was a tough one. You know, anybody who's going to tell you that they're getting ready for it and whatever, the day after, it's extremely difficult because it's part of your identity. It's part of who you are. And now, you know, somebody else is playing with your toy. <laughs> So what do you have to say to somebody who, let's say they're graduating college now and they're starting to think about, well, I could, I'm observant and I could go work at Yeshiva or I could go work for a Jewish organization and know that the flow of their year will match how I'm living my life. Or I might want to do something in the secular business world. Now that you've gone on this whole journey, what do you say to someone who's looking at those two paths and thinking about what might be right for them? If you believe that our mission is to be beacons among the nations, if we're supposed to be a light among the nations, then ask yourself, what are your skill set and where are you going to be the best beacon among the nations? Is it going to be teaching and educating Jewish kids? Then go and do that. But if your skill set and if your ambition lends themselves to impacting a larger audience, then do that. I mean, I'm very proud. I always told rabbis, I have my own school. I, we've taught over one million employees how to live their life with purpose in at work and i think that's a mission what is next for you professionally and spiritually like what's on the horizon for you in those two areas over the next couple of years so i spend more time in israel these days so spiritually and family wise it's much more rewarding obviously i can dedicate more time uh, so, so I'm looking forward to uh, further, you know, enhancing or deepening some relationships on the family side that that were probably neglected a little bit. And on the professional side, I still keep a little bit on the consulting in the areas or on the speaking in the areas where I'm being invited to do. Uh, again, I, I don't pursue that uh, proactively, but if I'm being called, then for me, it's a, it's a message. Uh, and I'm looking at creating new jobs in Israel and beyond with the, a, new, a new startup that I'm working on right now. Well said. And now you have to close with the lightning round. So I hope you're ready. Shoot. 
All right, so with all of the worldwide travel you did over the years, how many frequent flyer miles did you accumulate in total? At United, I'm at over 3 million, um, <laughs> 3 million uh, miles. Uh, so if you saw the movie, you know, um, yeah. I'm up in the those. air? Yeah, up in the air. If I combine it with the other airlines, I probably crossed over 4 million. Uh, question two, you mentioned Dubai earlier. What's another fascinating place you got to travel to in your career? Mongolia. I was uh, actually in Mongolia on behalf of the UN and Siberia, beautiful places. And uh, yeah, Ulaanbaatar is probably the most uh, exotic place I've been to. And you mentioned a bunch of clients over the course of the interview. Who would you say was just the most interesting or most challenging or the most fascinating project or client you got involved with in your career? So they, they, they all come with different ones. I, uh, you know, I was debating if to say Mercedes or Mikiyashi, which is the Dubai-based cosmetics. But I would say probably the most fascinating one was the Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Arts. Uh, very different, uh, very difficult uh, transformation and organization that lost uh, major revenue streams through ticket sales and we needed to turn them around and that was uh, impactful, should I call it, you know? And so as someone who I know does that New York to Israel flight many times over the course of your life, when you're not catching up on your sleep, what do you advise people to do with those hours in the air? What do I advise or what do I do? I can tell you that I once <laughs> wrote a whole book in one month just on flights, you know, <laughs> just on flights. It was a crazy trip that included Frankfurt, Seoul, Shanghai and uh, and Houston. And I just wrote a whole book. I love to write. Uh, for me, that's how my expression comes through. Uh, English is not my first language, but I'm doing my best. For me, yeah, it's it's writing. I, I feel that in writing, I'm expressing and, and uh, verbalizing things in ways that thoughts would not be mature enough or complete enough so write it down document what you're doing you'll be surprised how beautiful it can come out and that's the perfect lead into our final lightning round question give our listeners a sneak preview of the next book that is coming out from Lior what's the subject matter you're going to tackle <laughs> so I have to tell you everybody asked me the question <laughs> yes I published I published several books I don't necessarily have a well-defined one but I'll tell you if there will be one it will actually be dealing with the, the concept of narrative. Uh, there are the facts and there are the narratives that we surround ourselves and how what how we present that to ourselves, not, not just to, to the world. And the power of how we build the narrative in a way that can either lead us to depression or to inspiration. Um, so I wanna, I wanna show people how, the, without knowing it, they are crafting narratives around facts that can really turn events into inspiration or desperation. And obviously, I want them to be inspired and not to be depressed. Lior, I want to thank you so much for the time today and for joining me on Saturday to Shabbos. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our executive producer is Rabbi David Pardo. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at TachlisMedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.